On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. Quickly coming to the end of chapter 3, which marks the end of the the doctrinal section of Ephesians. In chapters 4 through 6, Paul will begin... Uh, the practical uh, application of these wonderful doctrines. But we're still this morning in chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 14 through 21. So if you'll follow along now as I read, beginning in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. And we read there, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. There are a number of what we could call majestic prayers in the Bible. And of course, first of all, I think of our Lord's high priestly prayer in John 17, perhaps the most majestic of them all. But then there's the the prayer of Solomon at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. There's the prayer of the early church in Acts chapter 4 at the release of Peter and John from prison. And then... There's Paul's prayer here in chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, which is one of the most majestic prayers of intercession recorded anywhere in the Bible. This brief prayer from the greatest of all Christians is one of the most beautiful and often quoted prayers in Scripture. And this prayer is all intercession. There's, There's little thanksgiving, no confession, There's the briefest adoration of God as Father, and then Paul brings this Ephesian congregation before God, and he asks the Lord to bless them in certain mighty ways. He prays for God to strengthen them in their inner being so that Christ might dwell in their hearts, and and they might have strength to grasp the, the vastness of Christ's love for them. And the ultimate goal of this prayer is that his readers might be filled with all the fullness of God that they might be all that God has created them as individuals and as the church to be. It's a wonderful, amazing, rich prayer. And since we're going to be talking about prayer, it's best if we define what prayer is so we'll all be on the same page and know what we're talking about. So what is prayer? Well, prayer means simply speaking to God. God speaks to us through the words of Scripture. And then we respond to him in the words of prayer. And and prayer, of course, is one of the most important activities of the Christian life. Prayer should be as natural for the Christian as breathing. In fact, you could say our prayers are like breathing. And so when praying is neglected, we soon become spiritually sick. While he was in prison for his faith in Bedford, England, John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, wrote another little book published now as Praying with the Spirit and with Understanding Also. And in it, uh, this is how he describes healthy prayer. It is a sincere, fervent, 
affectionate pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Spirit for such things as God has promised or according to his word for the good of the church with submission and faith to the will of God. That's a great definition of what healthy prayer is. And that is the kind of prayer we find here and elsewhere in Paul's letters. And as we look at this brief prayer here in Ephesians, we, we, we must keep in the forefront of our minds that Paul was a prisoner. He was in confinement, chained to a Roman soldier. And yet he prayed. Martin Lloyd-Jones made this observation as he began to look at this prayer. And he said, Though he is a prisoner, though a malignant enemy has arrested him and has put him into bonds and has made it impossible for him to visit them at Ephesus and to preach to them or to go anywhere to preach, there is one thing that the enemy cannot do, and that is he cannot prevent him from praying. Paul can still pray. The enemy cannot confine him to a cell, or the enemy cannot confine him to a cell. He can bolt the doors, he can chain him to soldiers, he can put bars in the windows, he can hem him in and confine him physically, but he can never obstruct the way from the heart of the humblest believer to the heart of the eternal God. In many ways, in this uncertain modern world of ours, this is one of the most comforting and consoling truths we can ever learn. Think, he says, what it means to hundreds, if not to say thousands, of Christian people in various parts of the world at this moment. And so here was Paul, a man with burdens enough about his own situation, a man who was always burdened for all of the churches that he had started. So burdens enough, but yet he prayed. And this is one of the things that makes Paul's prison letter so remarkable. In his mind and heart, he was able to rise above his confinement. He told the Ephesians that his suffering was for their glory. And the Colossians that he rejoiced in his sufferings for their sake. And he assured the Philippians that his imprisonment had served to advance the gospel. And that they were both partakers with him of God's grace, both in his imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And later, during his second Roman imprisonment, Paul encouraged Timothy that though he was suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, the word of God was not bound, or the word of God was not chained. You see, Paul absolutely was absolutely persuaded that for those who love God, all things really do work together for good for those who were called according to his purpose. And it was this God-centered Christ-centered perspective on life that that freed Paul from self-pity and enabled him to seek, even while in chains, the good of God's people. You see, the thing that dominated Paul's concern and, and his passion was never himself, but rather the furtherance of the gospel and the spiritual progress and well-being of the people of God. His concern was for others, and so he prayed for them. He prayed for them. And you know, from time to time, you, you hear people say things like, well, you know what, I've got enough troubles of my own without praying for other people's troubles. Well, that thought never entered the mind of the Apostle Paul. Again, here was a man with enough trouble of his own. And yet he prayed not for himself, not that he would be rescued from his imprisonment, but rather that God would strengthen the Ephesians and fill them with all the fullness of God. Do you know that almost every one of Paul's prayers recorded in Scripture is for the spiritual welfare of others? For example, Paul prayed that the Philippians' love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that they would approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He didn't cease to pray for the Colossian believers to be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. 
He prayed for Philemon that the sharing of his faith would become uh, effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that was in them for the sake of Christ. And these are only a, a, a f- very few examples from the other prison epistles written during the same time period as Ephesians. So even when he was persecuted, imprisoned, and in need of many things for his own welfare, Paul prayed primarily for fellow believers, that they might be spiritually strengthened and protected. And when Paul did pray for himself, it was most often for the purpose of being better able to serve his Lord and the Lord's people. I mean, later in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul will ask the Ephesians to pray for him, that the words may be given to him in opening his mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Almost all of Paul's prayers in Scripture are for the spiritual growth and well-being of others. He often mentioned that he prayed continually for others, and he repeatedly encouraged others to do the same. And so it should go without saying that like the great apostle, believers should be praying for the spiritual needs of others for the salvation of the lost and and the spiritual growth and protection of of their brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, this is part and parcel of loving one another. I mean, prayer, not only for ourselves and the needs of our own family, is to be a constant part of our daily living. I mean, how our own praying, my own praying, needs to be deepened and and strengthened, more God-centered, Christ-exalting, more rich and filled with Scripture, you know, a genuine calling upon our Heavenly Father through Christ by the Spirit for, for eternal things, spiritual things, and not only for the physical and the temporal. And as we go through this amazing, theologically rich prayer, may may each one of us pay attention to what Paul prays for and then let his prayer shape and characterize more of our own praying. May God enrich our lives and in particular our prayers and our praying through this study. And Paul's prayer of intercession here in our text breaks down this way. In verses 14 to 15, we have the introduction to the prayer. In verses 16 to 19, we have Paul's three petitions, or his three requests. In verses 16 to 17a, Paul requests that they may be strengthened. In verses 17b through 19a, that they may comprehend and know experientially the love of Christ. And then in verse 19b, that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then the prayer concludes in verses 20 to 21, with an amazing doxology. So that's the introduction. Now let's look at Paul's introduction to the prayer in verses 14 and 15. And this is as far as we're going to get this morning. We read in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. For this reason, he says, So Paul begins in verse 14 by repeating the words of chapter 3, verse 1, where he started to pray, but then immediately stopped and decided to go over again some of the the amazing truths which had prompted his prayer in the first place. And so for this reason, refers back to, I mean, it could refer to everything that Paul said, but but primarily it would refer back to chapter 2 and the glorious truth that the Gentiles were dead in trespasses and sin, but God made them alive together with Christ, that salvation is a gift of God's grace received through faith alone, and that they are now God's workmanship created in Christ for good works that they were one time separated from Christ, without God and without hope in the world, but they were brought near by the blood of Christ so that believing Jews and Gentiles are made one in Christ. They're, They're now fellow citizens of God's kingdom, members together in God's household, a holy temple being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
It also refers to what Paul said in chapter 3, verses 2 to 13, where he pointed out that his ministry was given to him by nothing but grace. And, and this ministry involved the mystery being made known to him by direct revelation from God. And that at the heart of the mystery is the fact that Jewish and Gentile believers together are members of the new corporate entity, the, the new humanity, the body of Christ, the church, and they share equally in all the blessings God has provided in Christ through the gospel. And Paul was just overwhelmed by this. He was overwhelmed by the privilege God had given to him, the least of all saints, to preach to the Gentiles these unsearchable riches of Christ, and then on top of that, to make clear to all of God's, to all God's plan for believing Jews and Gentiles to be incorporated on equal terms into one single entity, the body of Christ, the church, and that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is being displayed before the entire universe. It's being displayed before the watching angels. I mean, God, God is doing this. God is showing forth His glory in us and, and through us. Therefore, that is, for this very reason, Paul prayed for those in whom God is, is doing it, that they might be fit vessels, strengthened by God for this important task. He prayed. But of course he prayed. He can't help but pray after teaching all the great biblical doctrines in the preceding verses because doctrine leads to prayer. Because doctrine opens our understanding of, of, of the great God that we serve and that will inevitably lead to prayer and worship. And so don't ever let anyone tell you that doctrine doesn't matter. Or that doctrine is cold, academic stuff that, that puts a damper on the spirit. They have no idea what they're talking about. Because doctrine is the truth about God and His gospel and about Christ and the church. And to think about and meditate on such deep, rich theological truths of, as we have seen in these first three chapters must lead you to pray and, and to thank and praise God for such amazing love. I mean, doctrine rightly understood should always lead to prayer and praise and worship. I mean, looking back at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Well, the first thing we notice is Paul's posture. He says, I bow my knees. And of course, that must have been quite an experience for the Roman soldier that was chained to Paul. I mean, you wonder what his reaction was the first time Paul dropped to his knees and began to pray. <laughs> for this reason, I bow my knees. You know, the Bible nowhere commands any special posture for prayer. In Paul's day, most Jewish people prayed while standing, usually with their hands open in front of them as an act of openness and surrender. In Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the publican, both men stood to pray. And so in saying, I bow my knees, Paul is not prescribing a required posture for prayer. I mean, he didn't even uh, kneel all the time while praying. And Scripture gives us many examples of God's people praying in, in many different positions. For example... As he interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah, we're, to, we're told Abraham still stood before the Lord. When David prayed about the building of the temple, he went in and sat before the Lord. As Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his betrayal, he knelt, and then we're also told that he fell on his face and prayed. And so bowing the knees is not required. But in Scripture, it, it, it signifies a number of things that may have prompted Paul to even mention that position here. First of all, kneeling represents an attitude of humble submission, of recognition that you are in the very presence of someone who is of much higher rank, dignity, and authority. For example, after proclaiming the Lord as the rock of our salvation, a great God, and a great king above all gods, and as the creator of all the earth, the psalmist says, come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. Solomon knelt before the altar of the Lord in his prayer of dedication for the temple. And secondly, 
bowing the knee before God is often seen during times of intense passion, emotion, urgency, and desperation. For example, Ezra was just appalled and, and heartbroken after hearing about the intermarriage of Israelites with their pagan neighbors, and so we're told that he fell on his knees and stretched out his hands in confession to the Lord on their behalf. When Daniel heard that King Darius had signed the edict devised by the jealous commissioners and satraps forbidding the worship of any god besides the king, we're told he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his god, all the while knowing that his continued worship of the true god would result in his being thrown into a den of lions. As Stephen was being martyred, we're told he fell to his knees and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. In the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, as we've already mentioned, knelt and then later fell on his face in prayer, intense prayer. And as Paul met for the last time with the elders from Ephesus, we're told that he knelt down and prayed with them all on the seashore at Miletus. And so kneeling in prayer represents an attitude of humble submission. And it was done in times of intense passion, emotion, urgency, and desperation. But the Word of God does not give us a command regarding the posture we should adopt when we pray. I mean, it's possible to pray kneeling, standing, sitting, walking, even lying down. I mean, I often pray while driving. My wife gets a little worried when I close my eyes while doing that, but (laughs) but I often pray while driving. I've prayed while walking. I always pray before difficult encounters with people. In times of intense need, when there is an overwhelming burden, I'll kneel before the Lord. I've prayed while sitting quietly in my favorite chair and lying on my bed. In our public worship, uh, like you, I, I pray while standing. I've prayed while holding hands with others. I've prayed while laying hands on someone. I've prayed with my eyes open, my eyes closed, my hands folded, and my hands raised. There's nothing magical about our posture. One position is not more spiritual than the other. The important thing in prayer is the attitude of the heart. That is the most important. We don't want to be like those of whom Jesus said, these people draw near to me with their lips, and yet their hearts are far from me. The attitude of our heart is what is most important in prayer. Because our posture in prayer may vary depending on the situation or where we're at at any given time. But there's no place we cannot, as it were, kneel and lay hold of the love and wisdom and power of God. And I don't mean literally kneel kneel down, but to humbly and reverently bow our hearts and souls and speak to our Heavenly Father. Reverence, however, does not mean a lack of boldness in prayer. I mean, Paul's prayer reveals a heavy dose of both. I mean, humility and boldness go together since both come from a biblical awareness of who God is. Especially when asking for things God has promised or that we know that God desires, we should pray with a holy boldness. And so although Paul knew it was not necessary whenever he prayed to literally go down on his knees, when he prayed for the Ephesians, he bowed his knees before the Father on their behalf. Not because that position or any other is especially sacred, but because it reflected Paul's attitude of reverence for for the greatness and the glory of God and his humble submission and intense passion. You see, there was no flippant with Paul. There was no flippant familiarity with God. There was none of this, the man upstairs or, or sweet little Jesus. There was none of that flippancy and familiarity with God when Paul prayed. But there was always a sense of great privilege of being allowed to come before the great God of heaven. In his last 
moments in person with the Ephesian elders, and I've already mentioned it, but in his last moments with the Ephesian elders on the beach at Miletus, Paul dropped to his knees and prayed with them. And knowing that they would never see him again in this life, there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him and then escorted him to the ship as he left. The leaders, the elders from the church of Ephesus would always have the image of Paul kneeling with them in prayer indelibly etched in their memories. And so when Paul begins this prayer with the words, I bow my knees before the Father, no doubt all of those same elders and their families, when they heard those words, would have remembered that that last emotional meeting with Paul as he knelt, bowing before God, interceding on behalf of the elders and the church in Ephesus. And now for the second time in his letter to that same church, Paul intercedes for them on his knees. Looking back at the verse, for this reason I bow my knees, and he says, before the Father. And if you're reading the King James Version or the New King James Version, uh, those translations add the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. However, those words are not in the best manuscripts, and therefore they are omitted from modern translations. But you'll notice that Paul calls him Father. Father. And this is the same name Jesus always used in prayer and the one he used in teaching his disciples how to pray. And of course, God is our Father, first of all, because he is the creator of all things. And so we are all, all men in that sense, are God's offspring, made in his image. I mean, even the angels were created by God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and and everything else that exists. But this is not what Paul is talking about here. Much more than that is intended here. In this verse, Paul means that God is the father of every one of his people by their new birth. You know, they were born from above. Or as John said in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, to all who did receive him, what does that mean, to receive him? Well, John tells us, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then in 1 John 5, 1, John says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So to everyone who has been born of God, God has given the right, the authority to be one of his children, and we must always think of him as our heavenly father. And that is the status of every Christian, every person who has been born again. That's their status. God is their heavenly Father. And God has also given us the spirit of adoption so that by the Holy Spirit we can call God Abba, Father. But more than that, in chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul called God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, because we are in Christ, that's another basis for us addressing Him as our Father. And then in chapter 2, he also said that Jews and Gentiles are fellow members of the Father's family, and through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And then in chapter 3, he said that in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence to the Father through our faith in Him. And here Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father. I bow my knees before the Father. And these words paint such a beautiful picture. How so, you ask? Well, the Greek word translated before means toward or face-to-face, face-to-face with. Along with the word father, then it implies the intimacy of a child coming before his father, coming face-to-face with his father who he knows will welcome and receive him in love. And so when Paul speaks of praying to the Father, he has in mind the access we have as God's children. And of course, a loving human father always accepts his children when they come to him, even when they've been disobedient or ungrateful. And so how much more does our Heavenly Father accept his children regardless of what they have done or not done? Hirelings, 
uh, might be forced to wait outside, but not children. No, children have permanent access to the Father's heart. And because God is our Heavenly Father, we don't come to Him in fear and trembling, afraid that He's going to reject us or be indifferent to us. No. He is our tender, loving, concerned, compassionate, accepting Father, and He delights to hear our prayers. And it is our great privilege, and I mean that, it is a great and glorious privilege to be allowed to come before our Heavenly Father in prayer. You know, many, many believers today, including you know, many young people and new Christians, find prayer to be rather difficult. And one of the reasons for this could be a lack of understanding and or a failure to appreciate the unspeakably great privilege it is to pray. And make no mistake about it, we need to see prayer like that. We need to see prayer as what it is, a great privilege. I mean, prayer is, is, is not simply talking with your eyes closed. It is speaking to your heavenly Father with your mind fully engaged, opened, and aware of what great things He has done for you in and through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Prayer is a privilege that was purchased for you and I by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And so we must use it and do so with reverence and with great joy. And knowing what a great privilege prayer is, I mean, that absolutely energized Paul's approach to prayer. So he approached the Father with boldness and confidence, knowing that he's more willing for his children to come to him than we ever are of going to him, and that God has been waiting for us all the while with a Father's heart of love and anticipation. Loved ones, like Paul, we, we too can approach God and, and pray with confidence because we're approaching our Father who loves us. And I don't think we really understand that. We've said it and heard it so many times, we, we don't, we can't even grasp or comprehend what that truly is. As Jesus said to his disciples, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I mean, we must remember this. In Christ, we are objects of God's special fatherly love. I mean, let that sink in. In Christ, we are objects of God's special fatherly love. I mean, He loves us with the same fatherly love with which He loves His own eternal Son. Let that sink in. And that's difficult for us to believe, yet it's absolutely true. I mean, God loves you and I with the same affection He has for the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps you're thinking, you mean he can look at me and say, you're my beloved son or you're my beloved daughter, I'm pleased with you? No way! Well, yes, amazingly, that is true. It's true. If you're in Christ, it's true. And that is how your Heavenly Father sees you and sees me. I mean, He cannot see us outside of His beloved Son. I mean, listen. Because God is the Father of the Redeemer, He must be the Father of the redeemed. 
And so as Christians, we're entitled, along with every other believer, to look into the smiling, loving face of God and call him Father. Father. Abba, Father. And Paul wants the Ephesians to know this, to understand this. God wants us to understand this. But Paul wanted the Ephesians, he wanted all of his readers to understand this. Why? Because Paul is a caring pastor. And he knows that that nothing will give security and stability to these believers in Ephesus living under very difficult circumstances more than the knowledge and conviction that God is their Father. And because the Heavenly Father is the best of all fathers, He is always committed to doing what is good and best for His children. I mean, the assurance that God is is Father to His believing people who loves them with an everlasting love is a truth that the entire Bible seeks to burn into the hearts and minds of God's people. In his high priestly prayer in in John 17, Jesus again and again tells his disciples that his Father is their Father. He assures them that the Father himself loves you. And Paul now goes on to say one last thing. That from this Father, notice verse 15, every family in heaven and on earth is named from whom or from this Father every family in heaven and on earth is named. Well, what does that mean? Well, first let me tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean that God is the spiritual Father of every being in the universe. It does not teach, as theological liberals would have us to believe, the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. As one commentator noted, the Word of God clearly teaches two spiritual fatherhoods, God and Satan's. God is the heavenly father of those who put their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation, and Satan is the spiritual father of those who do not. And these two opposite fatherhoods are explicitly distinguished in John chapter 8. And there, to the unbelieving Jews who rejected him but presumed to claim Abraham as their spiritual forefather, Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Then he goes on to say, you are doing the works your father did. And he said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. You, he said, are of your father, the devil. In his first epistle, John declared in 1 John 3.10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So this does not teach that God is the spiritual father of every being in the universe. It does does not teach the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. Well, then what does it mean? What does it mean when Paul says, from this father every family in heaven and on earth is named? Well, first of all, every, every, the word every, every family can be translated as the whole family, as the NIV version has it, which absolutely fits the context. Because Paul has been emphasizing the unity of the Jews and Gentiles in one body, the body of Christ. And so why in the world would he interject a new idea of every family which implies individuality and not unity? Well, the answer is he wouldn't. And so it's best translated from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. And so it's not a variety of families that Paul is thinking of here, but rather one family. The whole family that gets its very name from God. Well, who would that be? Well, he's talking about the whole family of God, isn't he? 
God's new family, the church, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, male and female, young and old, educated and uneducated, everyone, all the saints of every age, the family of the church, those who have finished their race and are already in heaven, and those of us who are still here on earth. The church is one big family of God, and and here on earth we are only separated from the rest of our family by death or rapture. And God is the Father of all who have believed on Christ. And He gathers us up in Christ, and He indwells each one of us by His Spirit, and, and He is also preparing a great homecoming for this vast family of His. But until that day, it is in and through this church family on earth that God's great purpose of making known his manifold wisdom is being fulfilled and accomplished through Christ Jesus. And as we think of the, the whole family of God, there's a great lesson in prayer here for us. You know, when we pray, we must go beyond our own, you know, small interests our own small interest and, and limited circle of Christian friends, and, and even beyond the, the concerns of our own church, and in addition, pray for the church of God at large, the whole family of God throughout the world. And we should be praying that God would strengthen the church throughout the world, and, and then we must be encouraged by what God is doing through his people everywhere. And he is doing some amazing things in different places in the world. The emphasis of this prayer is that Paul got down on his knees, bowing before God the Father, who is the father of his entire church family, all of the redeemed, both in heaven and on earth. But here Paul was was praying for specific people, real people, people he knew, people he loved, people he was concerned about. Their, Their situation absolutely touched his heart. But some of them had knelt down with him on the beach and prayed and and wept with him. No doubt Paul could remember when when many of them were converted. They were dead in in the trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, sons of disobedience, living in the passions of their flesh, children of wrath, walking in the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in them due to their, their hardness of heart. They were callous, given over to sensuality, practicing every kind of impurity. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved them, even when they were dead in their trespasses, made them alive together with Christ. And by grace they had been saved. I mean, Paul knew, humanly speaking, that they had been hopeless. But Paul had also seen what a glorious thing God does when he regenerates a sinner and makes everything new. And Paul probably thought of his conversations and prayers with them, how he had helped them when they were guilty and discouraged and helped others when they had lost their assurance and and others when they were going through severe trials. And Paul had spent three years with them. And here he has spent almost three chapters telling them about the privileges they had in Christ by the grace of God. Though they were dead in sin, they they were made alive, and so now they're, they're members of the body of Christ raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. They're his workmanship, created in Christ for good works. They're fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, a holy temple, a a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. They're fellow heirs, partakers of the promise in Christ, members of the same body, the church, through which the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose of God that was accomplished through Jesus Christ. Amazing. How absolutely and utterly amazing is the transforming power of the gospel. And we forget how amazing the transforming power of the gospel is, especially in the West and especially in this country, because what people have been responding to for decades so often is not even remotely uh, the real gospel. 
It's a watered-down, compromised version that's unrecognizable. They respond to it, and because it's not the gospel, it doesn't transform their lives in the least bit, so their lives never change, so there is no transformation to look at. And so we have forgotten how utterly amazing the transforming power of the gospel truly is. I mean, think of it, these Ephesian Gentiles had gone from alienation to sonship, from worshiping the goddess Diana, practicing the, the black arts magic, to worshiping the true and the living God. That's amazing. And they were on Paul's heart as he wrote to them, and he naturally prayed for them as he constantly did. And he was asking the Father that these people in Ephesus might have the strength and the power to live a transformed life, for there to be a difference in their behavior, that they, they would actually act and live as people who would experience the grace of God in Jesus Christ. He was praying that there would be strength and power and love and knowledge and the fullness of God in their lives. I mean, those are the concerns of this prayer. I mean, Paul longed for the transformation in them to be in accordance with the effect of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, living in their hearts. I mean, one of the, the urgent, pressing questions for the early church was, what would life be like in the absence of and at the death of the apostles? Were they, were they going to be light in Ephesus? Would they be salt, the salt of the earth? Would they be shining in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation? Did their, their lives bear testimony to the reality and the power of the gospel they preached? And these are the same questions challenging us today. Are our own lives truly different? Are our lives really transformed? You know, are we loving and wise? Are we filled with all the fullness of God? Is it a transformation according to the indwelling of Jesus Christ? I mean, that's the key. Through Christ, we're to be different. Not weird, different. And there, there's a difference. <laughs> No, through Christ we're to be different. Why? Because we are in Him and He is in us and He cannot be in us and have it not change our lives. I mean, the great thrust of Paul's prayer is that the Ephesian Christian should be that they should live out what they are in Christ. I mean, are we living out what we are in Christ? In other words, are we living out our lives in accordance with God's Word? Because a transformation has actually and truly taken place in our heart by the Gospel. And so Paul prays for them. He prays that they would be strengthened with power through his spirit in their inner beings so that Christ may dwell in their hearts, that being rooted and grounded in love, they would have strength to comprehend and to know the love of Christ, that they may be filled with all the fullness of God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think according to the power at work within us. And were they living like that? Were they living powerfully, living in Christ, living in the Spirit, or living by their own strength and resources? I'll ask it again, are we living like that? Are we living in Christ, living in the Spirit? Or are we living by our own strength and our own resources? You see, our Heavenly Father is strong. 
And he is able to strengthen every believer to be strong. And by the indwelling Spirit, he enables and empowers us to live this life that he's called us to live. And he expects us to live according to what he has done in us and according to the resources he has made available to us. And this is what Paul is praying for concerning these Ephesians in this extraordinary prayer of intercession. And as we come to Paul's specific prayer requests, instead of a series of of disconnected petitions, we, we need to think of them as a progression in which each petition lays the groundwork for the next. And so as one man suggested, we should picture them as a pyramid. The first request is the bottom layer of stones, and as the prayer advances, Paul is building toward a glorious climax. And his first request is in verses 16 to 17a. And that first request is that the Ephesians may be strengthened. And we'll pick it up here next week, Lord willing. Let's stand and pray. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org, calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's your love.